Hey, my name is Daniel Sanderson, and for those of you that don't know me, I'm the relatively new associate pastor here at Rich Church, and I am extremely excited and very honored to be able to share with you guys today. I've been given the task of doing like a one-off sermon, and, and we're, what we're calling it today is enough. And so we'll kind of walk through that, but I'm actually really, really excited to be able to do a one-off because I got to spend tons of time being like, hey, Jesus, what do you want me to say to the church today, right now. And so in my time spending, uh, in, or time in prayer, time in reading and listening to different things, um, I feel, I started to feel really convicted about something that I want to share with you guys. And so I'm actually really, really excited to be able to share how God's been changing my heart and transforming me through even the process of putting together this sermon. And so the goal or objective of this sermon today is that hopefully by the end, you realize that Jesus is truly enough that you don't need Jesus plus rules, Jesus plus knowledge, Jesus plus influence, Jesus plus position or power, that Jesus alone is truly enough. Because unfortunately, in the church, like at large, you kind of find a bunch of Christians that are always, or they always seem to be frustrated. And I believe what I want to walk, walk through today is that I believe the reason for that frustration is because we end up leaning towards always picking religion over Jesus, that Jesus is never enough for us. And so my goal is at the end that we kind of come to that understanding, we see and we can trust that Jesus is truly enough. And ultimately, anytime that I ever speak preach to you guys or share from the word to you guys is like my goal is just to bring you closer to Jesus that's that's the goal and I get to do it through the living word of God the the word that can actually transform and change your hearts and your minds I want to pray and we're going to jump right into it Lord thank you so much for today and the opportunity that we have to be able to to look at the word together to be able to worship together to be able to log in like online um, and God I just pray that the Holy Spirit is the one that's convicting the hearts of the people tuning in today that it's nothing to do with what words I use um, or the metaphors or the points but God honestly you know what each and every person watching this sermon today needs to hear and I pray that that comes through that that is clear we love you lord and we give you um, the next 30 to 40 minutes amen so what i find funny in life is how people have this special gift for finding something to be frustrated with like it'd be something as silly and or as simple as okay like we experience a lot of rain here in vancouver maple ridge the lower mainland area and we're always oh it's so rainy it's so gray it's depressing we're like we just want heat we just want the sun and we had a heat wave just like a couple weeks ago where it's like it's 40 degrees and we're whining and we're complaining and we're frustrated because we're like we just want a little bit of rain but even funnier than that, think about even like, if you ever had to fight over like who's going to wash the dishes? Because I know that a lot of people when they start off being married, they don't have a dishwasher. And so you've got to do it all by hand. You're complaining, oh, if only we could have a dishwasher. The funny thing for Des and I, when we ended up getting a dishwasher, we then were frustrated right away because we were still tired of doing the dishes. We didn't want to put in the dishwasher and we fight, we would fight over who actually is putting the dishes in there, even though it's way easier and all we ever wanted was a dishwasher. Or... Even more on a personal note, Des, when we got married, she always wanted to be like, hey, let's go to bed at the same time. 
Like when I'm going to go to bed, can you come? Let's fall asleep like together. And that was her big thing. But I'm a night owl. So I want to stay up and I want to do other things, get other things done and then come in later. And she said like, no, Daniel, like I want you to come to bed when I'm in bed. But the funny thing, so even though she was frustrated that I wouldn't do that all the time, when I do go to bed at the same time as her, literally I could be lying there like wide awake and she'll be like, stop snoring. Stop snoring. I'm like, I'm literally awake. I'm just breathing. So she's already frustrated with any sound that I make while in the bed. I'm like, what do you want? Do you want me to not go to sleep when you're going to sleep? Or do you want me to come to sleep when you go to sleep? It's like we always find a reason to be frustrated with something. And on a personal note, in a more like serious note, I find it really, really easy to get frustrated with something every single day. Not just the silly things, but actually the real heavy, like the weighty things in life. And I think since COVID, COVID really like exploited this or blew this up because like you think about beginning of 2020, you had a lot of terrible things that started happening like almost every single week, every single season, like something new that was painful, that was frustrating, that was infuriating. And you have like, it starts off beginning of 2020 if Kobe died. That might not be a big deal to you, but that was a big deal. Kobe died. And then you have the Australian wildfires that like tore up tons of the country. And then you have um, the George Floyd incident when you have the whole Black Lives Matter. You have COVID that started that affected the whole entire world. And then you have a bunch of different shootings. So like just to list off a couple, we have the Atlanta market, the Texas church shooting, Colorado shooting, Santa Barbara shooting. Then you have the Israel-Palestine crisis. And then we have the residential school findings. And then we have the injustice against the farmers in India. We have the Lytton fire where that whole town is wiped out. And now even the last couple of weeks, I've heard about all the craziness that's going on in Cuba right now. So uh, during COVID, literally it's just one thing after another of terrible things that we're noticing and hearing that's happening in the world and we feel the weight of it all. And no, I believe that one of the reasons why the heightened level of anxiety is amongst the next generation is because it's the generation that literally at their fingertips has ac- access to all the terrible things that are happening around the world all the time. It's unrelenting. Every week through social media, through the internet, through whatever, it's like they get bom- we get bombarded over and over and over with all the brokenness in the world, all the pain and the terrible things that people have done to each other. And it's, it's heavy. It weighs. And it's, it makes us frustrated. It makes us angry. It makes us sad. And it get, it, like we're tired of it. We, we experience this every single day. There's always some new news that makes you feel like garbage. And then this is all, all this news is unrelenting. And I know we have a reason to be frustrated because we see all this brokenness. But what hurts me actually about the church is when the church becomes frustrated with each other. And, tr- and if you don't believe me, trust me, I've been working for churches long enough to know that this is a very real thing. People in the church are frustrated about direction, about how things get communicated, about what paint we put on the wall, about the vision statement, about the style of music. We're frustrated about so many different things. We get frustrated even about the secondary theological issues. There's always something that we feel like the church is getting frustrated about. And like I know it's because even coming here on staff, talking to the rest of us, being like, guys, no matter how convicted you are, and no, no matter how on point we think we are with the decisions that we're making, you have to understand that there's going to be people that are going to be happy about the decision you made, and there are going to be people that hate that decision. 
And so you have to be okay with it because there's always going to be someone in the church that doesn't like what we do as a staff. And that's a scary thing. It makes us feel like we need to hold back. It scares us to, be, to fall through with the convictions that God has actually laid on our hearts. And so unfortunately, we see people frustrated with each other in the church. And this is what I want to address. Why do we allow ourselves in the church to get so frustrated with each other and with the way things are? And I know we don't want to feel like that. We don't like it. So why do we still allow it to happen? And I believe it is because we have a focus and an overvaluing of the wrong things. And we focus on the things that are not Jesus. We end up focusing and leaning more and more towards religion. So we'll be looking at two different stories from the Bible today. The transfiguration story in Mark 9 and the woman caught in adultery in John 8. So we're going to jump into Mark 9. So we're going to throw some of the verses on the screen. You can open up your Bibles. So this takes place after Jesus feeds the 4,000, after he heals a blind man in Bethsaida, after he foretells his death and resurrection. So it says, in, starting in verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So what happens is, is that Jesus is traveling around with his disciples. He has a bunch of other people following him, seeing what he's doing, listening to his teaching. And he says, okay, Peter, James and John, you're going to come up with, me, up with me to the top of the mountain. They don't know what's going to happen. The other nine disciples, we don't know why they, they weren't invited to come. And they're maybe frustrated and wondering, like, aren't we not good enough? Why does Jesus have favorites? And they go up the mountain and the transfiguration happens. And I'm not going to get into detail of what that actually was. But all I'm going to say is that it was an amazing, ma like magical, transcendent like experience where they get to see and be a part of Peter, James and John. And as it's happening, they see two other figures appear, two kind of like heroes or prominent figures in like the Jewish community for the, for the Israelites. You see Moses and you see Elijah. And so you see all three. And when I was doing like my research and I was looking into it, that in that culture for the Jewish community, for the Israelites, you see that Moses represented the law from like the Torah, like the rules. He represented rules and he represented systems. And then you have Elijah, who was a prophet, but was known and represented a lot to do with knowledge. So what you have there at the transfiguration, on the top of this mountain, you have Jesus, you have Moses, so rules and systems, and then you have Elijah, so you have knowledge. You have all three. And Peter's like, wow, this is crazy. This is amazing. I want to, let's stay up here and I want to make a tent. I want to provide a tent for each of you individually, all three. Jesus, I want you. Moses, I want rules and systems. And Elijah, I want knowledge. And so he wants all three of them. And so if you think about it, when you say Jesus, and then you've got rules and systems, you've got knowledge, you put them together, what do you get? You get religion. So he's saying, I want you, Jesus, but I all, and I love you, but I also want religion. And so you might be wondering, what is so bad about that? Why is it bad to focus on rules or like the law and knowledge? Because the, the dangerous thing is that what we actually try to do with the rules and systems and knowledge the dangerous part of those is what we try and use them for, what we try and do with it. Because what we try and do with rules and we try and do with knowledge is we try to cover up our brokenness, our shame, and our sin 
We use them as tools. And so we use it almost like as a protection blanket. And the reason why that I think that I can point to that that's the reason for is you look at Mark chapter two, just quick summary, he's got Jesus and the, and the fig tree. So Jesus is walking and they see, and him and the disciples, and they see the fig tree and he pretty much like they say he curses the fig tree, but he pretty much just says, hey, done with you. You're never going to produce fruit again. And then he goes to the temple and he starts upending everything in the temple. And he's saying, I don't like what this has become. I'm going to change things. I'm going to bring a revolution in this, a whole new system. And then when they're walking past, they see the same fig tree and it's like all wilted and then the leaves are gone. And what that's representing is that Jesus is saying, hey, the old system, the old rules is done. It had its time. It's had its place. I am coming to bring a whole new system. And the leaves, when I looked at, well, okay, what do these leaves mean? The leaves represented rules and systems that we tend to use to cover up our shame and our insecurity and our pain and our hurts. And you look back all the way to Genesis and you see with Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God and they brought sin to the world, they try to hide. They're ashamed. Immediately they're ashamed and they're embarrassed and they want to hide. And they use leaves to hide from that shame. They're trying to hide away from God. And so that's what that's representing. And so what happens is we take religion. The reason why we like religion is because we take the rules and we take the notes. We, we use them like leaves to try and cover up what we don't like about ourselves. We say, hey, we want rules because what happens with rules? You use rules because then you can categorize mistakes and sins. So we can be like, oh, well, what that person did was worse than what I've done. So look at them. Aren't they bad? So you switch the attention from yourself and your hurt and your brokenness and your mistakes onto someone else. And you hurt someone else in the process. And with, with knowledge, we say knowledge is power. It's like, okay, if I just know more, I know more about theology. I know more about Jesus. And I know more about someone else. And be like, oh, like, poor you. Like, you, you, like, oh, you don't know as much. Or like, oh, at least I know what's truly right. I'm right. I know the technical. I know the Greek. I know the Hebrew. So I'm better than you. And we try and point attention away from ourselves. And the reason why I know that we truly do try and cover up is because every time I know that when you look into the mirror, I'm not talking about physical appearance, but that's probably part of it too. But when you look in the mirror, you never always like what you see. You look at the mirror and right away you're reminded of the past pains you've caused other people. You look at yourself like, I didn't, I'm not good enough. I'm worthless. My parents didn't think I amounted to anything. You look at yourself, you're like, oh, I know what I've said about someone else. I don't think I'm talented enough. And we ride away. It's like, there's a reason why, like, you look at body language, someone's insecure, like, you cover up. That's why people hate photos of themselves, because they, or they, or they hate a photo when there's no filter to cover up and, like, get rid of the blemishes and everything. Is because we want, we're ashamed of what we've done or who we are. But the thing is, when we're so focused on religion, it actually draws our attention to something even more dangerous. We start to overvalue something else. We start to overvalue and fixate on sin. And how religion does that is like you look at rules and rules gets us to focus on sin because it, help, it makes us focus always on the people that break or don't follow the rules. So we start to draw our attention to those people. Think about a referee. His whole role on like the ice or on the court or on the field or whatever is to watch for who has done something wrong and to penalize them. That's their whole mentality is just to fixate on that. So when you're focused on rules, you're only focusing on what is wrong. And then when you're focusing on knowledge, it's like you focus on being right and you're trying to find what is wrong because you like being right. You hate being wrong. Think about someone that's really, really smart, you know. They hate when they're wrong. Even when they feel like, oh shoot, maybe I might actually be wrong. They fight tooth and nail to try and justify or prove themselves. Because you know the, the smart people hate finding out when they're wrong. 
So when this happens with Christians, the only focus becomes sin. And so we start to focus only on the people who seem to sin or the people that make mistakes. mistakes. It becomes the focal point. So what impact does this have on us and others? And this is where we're going to jump into John chapter 8, verses 1 to like the first half of verse 6. So it says, But Jesus went down or went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him and that they might have some charge to bring against him. So what happens, there's these religious leaders, these religious leaders, they characterize themselves as the people that followed every rule. They also were the people that had probably the most knowledge because they were the only ones that were allowed to like re- be able to like read the Torah and to share that. So they're the ones that literally their role was rule follower knows more. That was their spot. And they go and they don't like what Jesus has been saying and what he's been doing and they're threatened by him. And they're trying to make a ploy to be able to catch Jesus so they can pretty much cancel culture. It's like the first example of cancel culture. Like, okay, if you say something we don't like, everything you've done is meaningless. But what they do is they go and they're like almost waiting for, they know that there's this woman that probably has committed this act of adultery before because they're waiting because they catch her in the act. So that means that they're probably close by, they're listening and they know what she's probably going to do. So she probably has a record of this. And they go and she's caught in the act of adultery. They take her from that roof. So she's probably still naked. She's completely vulnerable. They drag her through the streets and they bring her to a crowd of people that, and interrupt Jesus. They throw her down in front of Jesus and say, she screwed up. What are you going to do about it? And what they want to do is they want to stone her. And they already have come with stones in their hands. And I don't, without getting too gruesome, I do want to explain this, the, the gravity and the gruesomeness of what stoning actually is. Like, it seems pretty self-explanatory, but literally, that punishment was, hey, we're going to take these rocks and we're going to bash this person's skull to the point that brain swells so large and there's so much internal bleeding that the person dies. I don't know about you, but I don't think many of us wake up in the morning and be like, I want to bash some skulls today. Like, they must be so obsessed with eradicating the sin and following the rules and trying to catch Jesus, that they don't even care that they're like, I, we're literally going to gruesomely murder someone. That's heartbreaking. And so they do this and they want to catch Jesus and they, and they, bring, they bring her there and they're like, we want to stone her. The sick thing about this is that it shows part of our human nature where they probably actually felt pretty good about doing this. They probably were pretty happy. Oh, we caught someone. We feel good we caught someone doing something wrong. And this points out something in our own hearts because let's be real, even probably in this church, there's people that feel good about finding when someone else has done something wrong. So think about it. Maybe there's someone that literally their marriage is falling apart in the church because they either have a porn addiction or they had an emotional affair or a a sexual affair or whatever. And we're like, oh, that's like juicy. That's like interesting. It's like, oh, did you see? Like they screwed up. They screwed up. And you kind of get off on being like, okay, I found some terrible thing that someone else has done. Let's bring it to light and let's punish them. Sometimes we feel good because it's boring when things are just good and everything's thriving. It's like we want the craziness almost to happen. And so why, so instead of actually being like, I want every marriage to thrive and to glorify God and to have a a huge, like united church and all the marriages are healthy and and they point to Jesus. But no, we like it when people screw up and we're sick and we're twisted in that way. 
So the religious leaders were so focused on religion, so the rules and systems, that they became obsessed with the sin that was committed. And the thing is, this is the scary part, is that according to the Torah, according to the law, they technically were right. According to the law, she needed to be punished for her sin. And what scares me about this specifically is that even though that they were technically right, they couldn't have been more wrong at the same time. They couldn't have been more far off from the desires and the heart of Jesus. Which scares me because it means like, hey, we could be like, okay, because what the Bible said or about what I know about theology, this is this, this is that, and I'm right. But if we're coming at it with the wrong mentality and not to lift people up and to build people up and to point people to Jesus, we are still wrong even though we're right. And I know that I've even struggled with that where this is like an example where like I'm really, really like embarrassed by it. Um, it was in, it was on a band trip in Cuba and I was like grade 11, grade 12. And this was during the time like youth ministry had like transformed my life. Well, Jesus transformed my life, but it was through the platform of this youth ministry that I was in. And I had a bunch of friends. We're all on this band trip in Cuba and we were on fire. We want to share Jesus with everyone. And we found that one of our friends on this trip actually came out and she was honest. She's like, hey, I'm actually a Christian scientist. And so we asked, and she shared about what that was. And we're like, oh, she's so wrong. Like, that's not who Jesus is. That's not how sin works. It's not about Satan and all that. And we're like, we need to help her. We need to help our friend. We need to tell her that we're right. She's wrong and help, and help her switch and come back to the light. And so we're like, okay, we've got this plan. We're going to sit her down in the room. We're going to have like an intervention. And man, we were so dumb the way we did this. We, we go into the room and we sit and we have like five people in chairs. And then she's by herself in a chair in like the corner of the room. We literally cornered this friend. And we started being like, hey, you told us this, but you're wrong. We're right. This is why. Make the change. Like, how could you be so dumb? Why would you switch to that? That makes no sense. Like, don't be silly. And we were bombarding her over and over and over again. And she was so hurt, so offended that like, I'm so embarrassed. And I have like nightmares thinking about the scenario. I'm looking around. I'm like, what are we doing? I literally had one friend that couldn't handle anymore. So I have to go to the bathroom. Goes to the bathroom, climbs up to the small window in the top and jumps out of the room because he couldn't be there anymore. That girl, we never saw her again at the church. That was us. We, even though we were right, we were telling her, hey, like you've got the wrong idea about Jesus, but we were so wrong at the same time. And we like to look at the world and say, the world is the one that is mad with each other and nitpicks everything. And we've got the keyboard warriors where I'm scared to post anything online because I have no clue who's going to rip me apart from my opinion or my thought or my view. But I want the church to wake up because we are no different than them. In the church, we nitpick, we get frustrated, we get obsessed over menial things all the time. And the reason why I know this, because when I have conversations with people from the church, not just this church, but other churches too, 80% of the time, people are upset about something, they want something to change, or they're critical of something. Only about 20% of the time are they like, man, I'm so excited. I'm so thankful for what Jesus is doing. I'm so excited to be a part of how Jesus is working through this church. It's 80 to 20% like split. And that's why I know we struggle with this. And if you don't think, you're like, oh, no, 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 this is not me. It's like, I'm going to be honest. I even built, like writing this sermon, I fell victim to that mindset. Like this is like honest confessions. But when I was making this or when I was writing this sermon, I was like, okay, God, you're convicting me about focusing too much on religion instead of Jesus. And we're closed-minded and we need to stop pointing fingers. We need to stop being frustrated. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to call out the church. I'm be like, we're doing all these things wrong. 
but I was falling victim to the very thing that I'm trying to tell us that we need to be careful of. I literally was just like, well, because I know better, I'm going to tell you guys that you're wrong, that you need to stop being focused on religion, that you need to stop pointing fingers and being frustrated about dumb things. But I literally just put myself on a pedestal and being like, well, I'm better than you because I'm telling you and I'm calling you out and I'm coming guns a-blazing. So I apologize that literally as I'm writing about this, I fell victim to the very thing I'm telling us not to do. That's how easy it is to fall into this mindset. And I'm sorry. And that broke my heart. I need to be more like Jesus. What do you want to tell me? Where do I have to change in my mindset? Where do I need to focus on you more instead of focus on like, how can I tell people that they're wrong? So what we've witnessed so far in both stories is in one, so in the transfiguration story that we see the people longing for the comfort of religion. So the rules and the knowledge because it actually feels like it protects us. We can hide our shame and our insecurities and that we find that Jesus is enough, that Peter wants Jesus and religion. And then in the woman caught in adultery, we see in that story how religion gets people so overly focused on sin that they don't even care about Jesus, but they actually want to trick him. So this is the part I always look forward to. It's to see what does Jesus have to say? What does Jesus plan to do? And so we, we're going to look at John chapter 8. We're looking at the second half of verse 6 to verse 9. And we're going to kind of jump into that. So it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So what happens is there's the religious leaders come and they throw this woman down. They say, we need to stone her. She's made a mistake. Jesus, what do you have to say about it? And what Jesus says is you guys need to change your mindset. This is the big thing. He's like, you guys have to change your focus. And what he tells him in a really clever way, he says, change your focus from the one who has sin to the one who has no sin. Let me say that again. Change your focus from the one who has sin to the one who has no sin. And he does it in a clever way where he says, hey, if you want to cast a stone, throw a stone at her, if you've never sinned before, you be the first one. You be my guest. And one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away because they realize they are all broken. They are all sinful. They have all made mistakes. And in a super clever way, what Jesus is telling them, stop focusing on the sin. Stop focusing on yourselves and each other and the brokenness and turn your gaze to me, the one who has no sin. He is the one that truly doesn't have sin. And then we look at Mark chapter 9 again. So the transfiguration story from verses 7 from verses 7 to 9. It says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So when Peter's saying, I want to build a tent for all three, I want all three equally, God the Father says, No, you have my beloved son. He is enough. And poof, Moses and Elijah are gone. And what they're left with is Jesus, the only one that truly matters. And so what we're learning is that we need to f- change our focus from religion, from sins and our brokenness and start focusing more and more on, on Jesus. And this, because our issue is that we always seem to gravitate to want religion every single time. And we, and we have a hard time focusing in on Jesus. And I think this was like exploited, I guess is the best word, by COVID. 
So when I was at Village with my volunteer team and we were, on, we were stuck in our homes, everyone was sad about what was happening with COVID and our ministry went online. And I challenged my, my volunteers, my leaders, and I said, guys, think about it. Even though this is a terrible time and we're really sad and we're frustrated, right now we are having forced time in our homes. What will it look like if in our homes that we take that extra time to spend amazing, profound, magical time with Jesus, more time in prayer, more time in solitude, more time in worship, And what would happen is that after, whenever we're let out of our homes, that when we open the doors, the people that don't know Jesus, don't know the church, don't know Christianity, they see the rest of us and they, or they see the church and they're like, what the heck happened behind those doors? They're like glowing. Something changed about them. There's so much joy. There's so much passion. There's so much drive. And like, what would it look like that because we had that intimate time with Jesus and we utilized that perfect opportunity and we came out transformed? Maybe that's what God wants to use COVID for. I said, let's look forward to that. Let's, let's challenge ourselves to do that. Let's be changed. Let's have our hearts change. It couldn't have been more different when the doors really opened up. What I started to see when the doors opened up, that people fell victim to their vices. They fell victim to their temptations. They started to binge. Marriages started falling apart. People became more skeptical and cynical than ever. When the doors opened up, people came out, I don't like this about the church. The church is wrong. I don't like it as an institution. I think this is wrong. Why would we get rid of this? I don't like change. I don't trust this. I want more about the way I want things to be. People came out and I was like, what did you do? You missed the prime opportunity. You came out and you probably didn't spend time with Jesus. You missed that opportunity. When else are you going to then do it? You're forced into it. You could have done it. And we literally came out just pointing fingers, being frustrated and being like, the church is stupid. It sucks. It's broken. I don't want anything to do with it. I want things my way. I'm better on my own. That sucks. That is completely heartbreaking. And what's even more heartbreaking is if we look at what Peter is saying on top of the mountain, he's saying, while there's craziness, I'll get into that, down at the bottom of the mountain, we see, we see Peter saying, hey, I love it up here on this mountaintop experience. I want to stay here. I want you, Jesus, but not just you. I also want my rules and my, and my comfort in that and my knowledge and my comfort in that. I want to stay here on the mountaintop. Because what's happening is during that, when the nine disciples are down at the bottom of the mountain, there's things going on. This dad comes with the son that's been ravaged and in bondage and tormented by demons his whole life. Like, I can't even imagine what that'd be like to be a father of a, of a son or a daughter that's going through that. And he goes to the disciples and say, hey, you follow Jesus guy, can you free my son from this bondage? And they try and they can't. So right away, they're embarrassed. They're frustrated. They're wanting to, Are we right? Are we wrong? What are people going to think? The father is frustrated because he's like, why can't you? Like, I'm at my wits end. Like, can you please? Like, if you can't do anything, no one's going to be able to save my son or free my son. The Jewish community that's been following them around, they're probably like questioning, oh shoot, are we wasting our time? Is this Jesus guy legit? Look at his disciples can't even do anything when they said they could. And then they're frustrated. And then you have the religious leaders that are there. They're probably pointing, told you so. I told you you were wrong. I told you you couldn't do it. I told you that this Jesus guy isn't who he said he was. So they're all like, fighting and, and bickering back and forth and there's, cra- and there's chaos. And so Peter's at the top. He's like, I want to stay here on my mountaintop. I don't want to go to that. I don't want to be involved. This is safe. This is comfortable. I like my life here. I want to make a tent. Let's stay here. We do the exact same thing. We want to stay in our safe mountaintop experience of this church, this social club, this box. 
And if you don't believe me, it's like, we feel comfortable. It's like, don't you dare take my seat in the pew. I've been here for 20 years. This has always been my seat. You can see there's the butt imprint. That's my butt imprint in the seat. Don't get rid of that. Oh, I don't want to change the music. I was comfortable with the music for the last 10 years. Don't change that. Don't change the volume. Oh, don't change the vision statement. I don't want to like have all these different people start to come in. Oh, my community group, we're having great discussions. Don't let anyone in. No, I don't want to change. I don't want the dynamics. This is perfect. Dana, don't add anyone in. Oh, I don't change youth night. Don't change how we're doing youth because I heard of all these crazy stories and I want to experience the same thing. Don't change it. We like things to be the way that we want it to be and we're comfortable. It's like, oh, I want this mountaintop experience that in the service is exactly what I want and what I need. I don't want it to ever change. The thing is, is that we, when we have that mentality, when we focus on religion, we want to stay on the mountaintop, is we miss two key characters in this story. We overlook them. So what we do is we miss in the women caught in adultery is as these religious leaders are so focused on eradicating like the wrongdoing and they want to catch Jesus, that this woman that's literally so ashamed, she's been caught, she knows there's no way out, she knows she needs to be punished, she's afraid for her life, she's naked, she's embarrassed, she wants to die. And they don't even care about her. They don't care about her as a human being. They're willing to smash her skull in to make a point. We, you miss that. And on the tra- in Transfiguration Store, when everyone's bickering and finding like, oh, who's right, who's wrong, why couldn't they do this? I'm pointing fingers, all that. They miss that the boy is being ravaged by demons in front of them and his whole life has sucked. You miss that. And that's what happens when we're so focused on it. But what you, we start to, if we're focused on Jesus, we follow to see what he ends up doing and the impact he has. So with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus, he looks right at the woman and he, and he gets her to stand up. He brings the same playing field. Or even maybe he knelt down with her and got to her level and he protects her. He defends her and he says, I forgive you, now go sin no more. Because he's, he's like, I don't care that you made wrong. All I care is that you don't, you don't go off and do it again, but I want you to know that I love you nonetheless and I forgive you. And because of that, then you should try and not sin again. But he's like, I know you're prob- you probably will, but I will forgive you again. So Jesus goes straight to the person that's broken and hurting. And in the transfiguration, when he comes down from the mountaintop, he comes down and he goes straight to the boy that's being tormented by demons. And he is the one that frees him where the boys, uh, it's, the demons are eradicated and he's limp and the father's probably like, what's going on? And the boy comes to it and the father like, that must have been the best feeling for the father being like, my son can actually live free. So Jesus goes straight to him. He comes from the mountaintop. And you know what? We notice when we focus on Jesus that he's missional. That's his goal. That's his focus. He came down from the mountaintop to the boy, to the brokenness that we miss because we're so focused on ourselves and our issues. But it paints a bigger picture where Jesus from heaven, the whole gospel is about Jesus coming down from the mountaintop to come down to earth when he didn't have to. He saw the brokenness. He said, I don't want to be involved with their garbage and their mess. But he chooses to come down fully God, fully human, and he lives that perfect life. He deals with the same pain, the same temptation, and he lives that perfect life where he's the only one that didn't break a rule. 
He's the only one that actually knows anything. And he comes down and he comes because he knows we're broken and we need saving. And he goes and he does the most selfless, the most missional act ever, which is the cross. Because after he goes to the broken people, he points to the cross each time and says, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm doing it for you. No matter that you've got the wrong mindset, no matter if you screwed up or what you feel about yourself, I'm going to die on the cross for you because I care about you and I want to fix your brokenness because I'm the only one that can because I'm the one who follows every single rule. I'm the one that knows everything. You can't, and that's okay because I love you and I want to bring you into relationship. And this is why as a church, Ridge Church, we focus on our new vision statement, which is that the city may know Jesus because if we're not focused on each other and frustrated all the time and hurting each other, we'll maybe notice the brokenness in the city. Maybe we'll do that for the very first time and I don't think we're quite there yet. I still think we're very inwardly focused. But that's why we're changing this view because this is like a key line that I, I think you should remember is that the lifestyle of a Jesus follower is mission and mission is motivated by Jesus. And we can't be motivated, motivated by Jesus if we're not focusing on him. We need to switch from focusing on who has sin to the one who has no sin. What would it look like if you're so in love with Jesus that when we come together, we are just unified and our hearts care way more about Jesus and how he can change the lives of people, not that we can try and fix everything. I was watching this thing called the Freedom Experience and it just happened this past week in LA. Long story short, it was this big, like almost like conference thing in the, the stadium where they had, where they have the uh, Los Angeles Rams play. And they had a bunch of like Christians that are like also like toe the line with secular music. Like you have Justin Bieber, you have Will Smith's son, you have Chance the Rapper. They had some worship leaders. They had some people speak like Judah Smith. And it's like a really weird mix, but it was really impactful and powerful to see these people try and worship in this, in this sphere. And what, what, what was really intriguing to me is I watched Justin Bieber. And if you don't know who Justin Bieber is, like, I'll give you a quick snippet. But Justin Bieber, really popular uh, art, music artist, got famous at a young age, had everything he could ever want, fame, popularity, money, whatever. And he started to turn into a bit of a brat and people started to get mad and rag on him and write him off and be like, that, that boy is long gone. That boy is lost. That's a struggle. Like, I'm not going to pay attention to him. Nothing good, good is going to come from him. But I started to watch him and he started to have different pastors and mentors kind of bring him under their wing. I started to see his life start to change. I witnessed in person, I went to a conference in the States, I saw Justin Bieber there and he was worshiping his heart out. He's not perfect. I'm, I'm not going to say that. He still probably makes mistakes, will make decisions. I'm like, why would you do that if you love Jesus? But yet again, he's, his priorities are, are aligning to what he's supposed to focus on. He's starting to be transformed by Jesus. And after his set, he, sp- he like preaches for four minutes. And what he says, and like I started to weep during this part. He was like, guys, like I'm like, God wants to use ordinary broken people like me. And it's like, you probably know what I've done. I'm a broken person. And he's like, I, religion didn't change me. I don't want religion. He's like, what changed my life was Jesus I don't want religion. I only want Jesus. He's like, I want you guys to just experience and love and want Jesus. And he's like, that's what changed my life. Not rules, not knowledge, not religion, not all these other methods to try and fix my life. Jesus came to me and saved me. And then he invites Judah Smith up and Judah Smith in a beautiful way just explains what the gospel is, what Jesus did when he came down to earth and died on the cross and rose again. And I'm weeping, not because I'm sad, but because I'm so happy because I'm sorry, like, like, I'm sorry. But when I see someone come to know Jesus, that's probably one of the most exciting things for me right now. But I'm going to be honest, that was not my heart for most of my life. I didn't really care. 
I, well, I, just, I just talked the talk, but I didn't walk the walk. But I pray all the time, God, or Jesus, change my heart. Allow my desires to line up with your desires because I want my heart to ache for those that don't know you. I want to be excited when I see people where they feel like their lives are completely gone and there's no hope that they come and they see their lives transform. And now Justin Bieber is witnessing to the world about how Jesus changes lives. And I'm crying because I'm just so pumped. So if you don't feel emotional or you don't feel like happy when you see people come to know Jesus, you need to do a pulse check. Like if you're so focused on your own issues and the things that you're frustrated and angry about that you don't care that when you see a young person come to know Jesus here in the church or you're upset when you see people that, doesn't look, people that don't look like you or don't feel like you or don't believe or don't have the same opinions as you or the less fortunate come into the building, you're like, oh, why are they here? And you don't care that they're experiencing Jesus for the first time, shame on you. If you're so focused that you miss that, that's heartbreaking. We are about sharing the gospel and Jesus with other people. But it takes time. I ask you to pray. Ask Jesus to align your heart's desires with his desires. That's what I had to do. So I know that this has felt like a complete, this is like conclusion, so I'm wrapping up. But uh, I know that it's felt like a huge call out. This feels like I've been harsh and everything's just coming guns a-blazing. This is what God's convicted me to say. But at the same time too, even though this feels heavy, this is also the best news that you could ever hear. Because maybe you're someone that doesn't feel like, oh, religion is an issue for me. I don't really care about rules. I don't actually know that much about theology. I'm here for like the first time where I don't know too much about Jesus yet. And you're like, that's not me. That's not my struggle. Maybe you're looking and you relate more with the woman caught in adultery that's embarrassed and ashamed on the ground or the boy that's being tormented and ravaged and in, like prisoned by these demons. Maybe you are listening to this and you like, I'm that woman that literally has been caught doing the worst imaginable things. I am in the wrong. I should be punished. I am worthless. There's no coming back. I want to die. Maybe you're, you feel like you're that person. But the best news ever is that Jesus weeds out the noise. He pushes out the noise and he goes straight to you and says, I forgive you. He says, I love you and I forgive you. And you'll probably make more mistakes, but I will forgive you again and again and again because of what I've done, not what you can do. And so that's the best news for you, that you can actually be forgiven. And if maybe you're like, I'm the boy where I feel so trapped by my temptations, by anger by frustration or maybe you feel trapped from abuse or whatever that could be and you feel like there is absolutely no way out that you feel horribly oppressed and you're like I'm never going to be free everything I've tried nothing fixes it nothing pulls me out of it my life is going to suck but I encourage you that this shows you that Jesus comes from the mountaintop to you and says I will free you from that the boy probably has never experienced anything else other than being trapped. Maybe you've never experienced anything else but being trapped. But Jesus will free you. And he does that through dying on the cross but being risen again. So even if you've struggled and you've had the wrong mindset, you focus on religion, this is, even though this is the call out, it's also the best news because Jesus says, that's okay. There's nothing that I can't forgive or fix or save. And so he can change your heart. He will forgive you. So even when you go back to that mindset, he will still care for you and go to you over and over and over again. So what I ask for us is to be the church that fixates on Jesus 
and Jesus only, because then we'll stop being frustrated. Jesus is enough. We don't need religion and Jesus. Jesus is the one we see in the stories that did, does make the change. And if we f- focus on him, we'll actually see the church start to thrive and start to make impact and start to see a difference in the city. I love you guys. I'm so excited I've been able to get to know you and I hope to connect with every one of you. And I hope that this didn't feel like I'm just coming like guns a-blazing, but honestly, this is the best news ever, that Jesus is enough and he loves you and he'll save you. And let's stop fixating on what's broken but let's fixate on Jesus and what he can do and how he can fix things. Lord, we love you. We thank you for sending Jesus down to die on the cross and to be risen again for us. We're thankful that we don't have to stay like the woman caught in adultery or the boy trapped by demons. I'm thankful that even though we've maybe had the wrong mindset our whole lives, that you forgive that. I pray that as we, as we worship or as we go into the week, that we are able to have eyes for you and we see what you desire and how you see the city. We love you, Lord. Amen.